Hi and welcome to Walking Three Worlds. Um, today I'd like to acknowledge firstly our traditional custodians of the land that we're on, in particular where I'm recording this part, where I am, is the Turrbal and the Yagara people of the land. I pay all my respects to the elders past and present and elders that have come from far and wide, from all around the globe, to make this place their home. And I pay deep respects to the first peoples of this land, particularly the Australian Aboriginal people and, of course, the Torres Strait Islander people. Now, today, in Walking Through Wells, we've got beautiful guest Natalie Lazarou, um, and I'll give you a little quick overview um, for those who don't know who Natalie is, and I'm just getting to know her now. And Natalie is a Christang uh, woman, and what that means, she can unpack that. It's a group of mixed Portuguese and Moluccan descent, originally from Singapore, where Christang was a constant negotiation of identity, culture and place, especially as an ethnic minority group. Uh, Natalie moved to Brisbane in 2009 to pursue higher education and ended up staying on as a permanent resident. Home is an interesting and slippery term for her, often feeling a sense of it in both and neither. Natalie now works as a lecturer in education where her teaching areas are in drama, the arts and English. And also, specifically, we're going to talk about applied theatre, something she's really passionate about. Her research focus is in that area of socially engaged performance more broadly, as well as in cultural citizenship and public pedagogy. <laughs> Natalie, welcome <laughs> to Walking Through Worlds. It is. Well, you've got Thanks, a, Greg. You can expand a little bit more on there. There's a, a lot to digest there, but welcome. Um, Thanks, Greg. Cultural citizenship and public pedagogy, and then we'll go back to Chris Dang. What is cultural citizenship and public pedagogy? Yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about cultural citizenship. It's quite a complex, I guess you could think about a theory. But if you think about citizenship, we always think about, you know, your rights as a citizen to vote um, and things like that. But I guess there's some people, even though they might be citizens, there's a sense that they're not really given that full gamut of citizenship rights or they're not recognized in some way. And so, and a lot of that has to do with their cultural um, their cultural groupings or their cultural identities, and so how they, as um, I guess, marginalise, use that term in some way from the full range of citizenship rights, find ways to embed themselves as citizens in a country. And so, for me, while cultural citizenship obviously relates to a cultural identity, I think that term has been expanded to include things like people from low, lower socioeconomic backgrounds or you know early migrants and things like that. So it reminds me of um, what happened to First Nations mm. here because they didn't get any sort of citizenship till 1967, so, yeah. you know, through yep. the referendum, which is sad. They were a people of their own land and, uh, you know, the British mm -hmm. came in and sort of said, well, you're not really a citizen um, and they treated them um, mm -hmm. pretty badly, which, you know, viewers and listeners can hear a lot of the episodes about that discussion. Um, did that same problem happen with, well, actually unpack Christang, and then we'll probably talk more about how that links to your understanding of and learning of cultural citizenship. So Christangs. Yeah, so um, Christang or Christang is 
sort of a, a term given to those, um, especially in Singapore and Malaysia, who have come from that Portuguese settlement in Malacca, especially because there's a there's still currently a Portuguese settlement in Malacca where a lot of my relatives live as well, and so I guess we have been descended from that um, intermixing of the Portuguese who who sort of invaded. Uh, Malacca at the time, and then uh, and with the local Malaccans and the local Malay Malayans at the time, and then sort of, I guess we are their descendants, and so we're, um, I guess the English term that's been used is the term Eurasian, but for me that's always a very weird term because mm. people think Eurasian is you know one parent is European and one parent is Asian, whereas my parents, you know, were all Eurasian. So it, it ha it's a weird way when people, especially in Australia, ask me, so what's your ethnic background? Are you Chinese or Malay? I'm like, I want to say Eurasian, but that doesn't really explain anything. Mm. And so I think it's been in the more, even though I, I've known the term Kristang for a long time, I think it's only been very recent that I started to actually adopt that term to describe my cultural um, identity. And it's funny when I didn't even know of the word, so mm. it's like I've never heard of it until you put it in your bio and sent it to me. And then I did a lot of research around it, and it, it's funny because it all interfaces with the with really the understanding of even this continent that we're all on now, this big block of land that is so called mm. Australia. That the Portuguese, even before the Dutch, were probably navigating our waters. Uh, because they were already had a, a settlement up there in Malacca, 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 and around Malaysia yeah. and around that Singapore. So they had ports there. Um, and in Nick Brody's book called 1787, which is all unpacked in episode 15, for those who are interested, Nick Brody, an Australian historian, uh, wrote about the first 300 years before colonisation, you know, up to 1787, the book's called. And the Portuguese had such an influence uh, in sort of exploring that they even had the maps that they created, which are some of the maps that obviously the explorers like James Cook used those early Portuguese maps. But there's no real... Yeah. Uh, like there's nothing that tells you that Portuguese arrived here. Um, and I've dug around online and found this thing where the Portuguese... There is a theory about the Portuguese discovered Australia um, and some people even would struggle with that but it's funny because a lot of people don't even know that connection between the Dutch and Australia you know that you know you go to Western Australia and over there in um, uh, Shark Bay I think it is there's a plaque in the middle of the road and it says it's 1616 this is where Kirk uh, Hertog arrived as a young seaman mm. a Dutch seaman uh, trying to trade with the local people. And I think they know that it was 1606, I think, when they, they know that the Dutch arrived. But before all that, even 100 years before, it is possible that in 1530, the Portuguese were already here, potentially trading, mapping, and doing a lot around, particularly around the West Coast up northern Australia, you know. Um, mm. So I wasn't aware that the Portuguese had such a uh, connection uh, to this land, and for a lot of people, they're not even aware that the Dutch had even called it New Holland. They'd called yeah. Tasmania Van Diemen's Land. So there, there, there were all these sort of um, stories about the Dutch 
And as I'm reading about the Christang, the Dutch and the Portuguese um, are also part of the lineage within some Christang's heritage, aren't they? The, the Dutch yeah. and the, the Dutch Portuguese. Well, yeah. yeah. And, and also Jewish. There's a very strong Jewish connection. Um, I noticed within the uh, within the Christang population or, or their ancestry, it's quite mixed, isn't it? There's Indian yeah. as well. There's Malay. No, yeah. And it, yeah. That's why it's hard to actually define Pinpoint. it. Yeah, yeah. Because I do definitely have Goan um, ancestry as well. So, you know, even the Portuguese were in Goa, um, over, you know, over in Goa. So I, all that sort of trickled down to my family, I guess. So you're a walking embodiment of intercultural existence. Yeah. You know, so now back to public pedagogy. So mm -hmm. unpack that for me. Or for so our listeners think, as well. Yeah, so when we think about pedagogy, we always think about what happens in the classroom. Um, so you so know, what how, does pedagogy mean? What, what is its so the, definition? It's, it's basically to describe that sort of practice of teaching and learning. So what happens, you know, like that yep. practice of teaching and learning. And we always think about how education tends to happen in the classroom or pedagogy happens in the classroom. But how can that sort of learning in the classroom be then translated into a more real world kind of um, civic mindedness or civic engagement. So, you know, like taking it out of the classroom. Oh, into the broader community and yeah. yeah. And that sort of civic, um, civic mindedness and civic engagement in a wider sphere other than just contained in the classroom. So is that something you do with, uh, how does that connect to your applied theater um, that is sort of your research passion. Yeah, so one of the um, projects that I've been involved in for a long time is back home, well, I use that term home again very, very loosely, uh, back in Singapore, mm. and I've been involved and I've been connected with this group since the end of 2016, and they're a group, um, it was a grassroots group that emerged because um, a young woman named Dizati, and I'll just acknowledge her because we've worked really well together and she's an amazing young woman, young Malay woman. She um, started this group because she's also an applied theatre practitioner and she started this group uh, under the auspices of a voluntary welfare organisation that works with um, communities and families who are uh, from low socioeconomic backgrounds. And we can chat a little bit more about that history of um, uh, the poverty rate in Singapore as well if you'd like to, but they, a lot of the young people, they come from social housing. And so um, she used drama strategies and theatre strategies to get them to actually stage um, performances about the, the, the social issues that their communities face that tend to sort of not be talked about. So, you know, and then they perform it out into their communities and then the communities are engaged in a discussion about strategies that, you know, could have... Um, that maybe a, a different, so let's say, for example, they, they stage a performance about um, drug or a, a substance abuse in a family. So they might sort of explore how um, alternative pathways that some, some of the characters could have taken, some of the, maybe the support that could have been given by um, authorities or by, you know, um, by the more official, I guess, official groups could have come in and offered support and that sort of like a negotiation between the the participants and the audience who come and watch the shows. 
So they sort of are teaching and learning about the civic engagement through their performances out in the public sphere. Fascinating, fascinating. And, yeah. and you're currently working with, um, are you still working with the circus group? Yeah, so I'm, I guess I'm, yeah, yeah, Volcana. Uh, I'm a, I, guess, I would say that I'm a community member, so I try to involve myself as best as I can. Recently in December last year, 2021, um, the circus pull out, put out a call for members from the Volcana community to work on a, um, on a community performance with women survivors of domestic violence. And together we staged a show um, at the at QPAC last year in December. Fabulous. Fabulous. Yeah. And you're still doing that work. It's sort of one thing leads to the other, I assume. Yeah. So, yeah, so you know, whenever um, the circus directors have a project idea, I try to get myself involved um, as a, either a participant or might sit in and, and volunteer to document the work and, yeah, and just sort of help out there. So um, in terms of now, you've been here in Australia for, what, 12, 13 years, 13 years roughly? Yeah, thereabouts, When you yeah. first arrived, did, did, did anyone um, or did you go through a process of understanding um, the ancient history of Australia in terms of the peoples, the first peoples? Did anyone yeah, uh, yeah. pull you aside and sort of talk to you about that? And did they give you sort of an idea of what had occurred and why different periods in, in this land's history, um, you know, are still unresolved? You know, some mm, of the things I don't, like... Yeah, I didn't go through any sort of formal process, but I, it's, I'm trying to... I, I've learned about, you know, the history of what happened through various means, and it's hard for me to actually pinpoint when and where I started picking up um, understanding of this history. Um, I know one of the big shifts for me was when I did, um, again, with Volcana, I did a performance in, I would say it was 2013, maybe. Um, I had known about the history of, you know, um, like the stolen generation and things like that. I mean, I can't give you dates and names and times, but broadly understanding what happened. Um, and yes. then in 2013, Volcana did a show called Small Change. <clears throat> Small Change. And the theme around that show was on women and work. And part of the, I guess, one of the sub-themes of sub-stories that the circus was really interested in exploring was actually the story of the stolen wages Um um, mm. in, in Australia and especially in Queensland. And what was really powerful was that as part of that, we actually, um, they had organised uh, a talking circle at Coral Dagen at the State Library Queensland, yes. where they had actually invited some in, um, Indigenous elders who had gone through and who, had, who were victims of the stolen generation to share their stories with us. And so that really enriched another facet of understanding of the history of the, our First Nations um, Australians. Do you think a lot of people get exposed to the history? Like when they come, it's not really spoken about, is it? Or, or the, the shared histories too, because no, there yeah. is that, that, that prior history and the sort of the eventual um, 
rolling out of the settlers and mm. taking over land that wasn't theirs, but then also the arrival of the colonists, you know, and the convicts and, you know, the, the free settlers and the mm. agriculturalists. There's not a lot ever really spoken about that, is there? Yeah. And even during feel? that yeah, and even during that time when we were working on the show, when we were having little group discussions and a lot of the um the peop the women who had grown up in Australia and had gone to school in Australia were saying that they had never been taught a lot of these things. Mm, it's one of the it's one of the issues in Australia is getting this history out there mm -hmm. to, to truth tell, you know, to tell the truth about what occurred and not lay any guilt on anyone, you know, mm. generationally, but to understand and acknowledge this happened because I don't think we'll ever heal this, um, particularly unless we can talk about it in schools. I know there is more being done, so it's not like it's not happening. It is slowly um, permeating, but, you know, it's always the view that Australia was sort of discovered, mm. uh, but it was taken over and it's never really resolved its relationship, you know, with First Nations people. Uh, on that, have you heard much about the Uluru Statement of the Heart? Is that something that's come onto your radar, you know, that came up in 2015 around, you know, the centre of Australia? They took yep. 300 uh, elders out and put a statement together um, to try to reconcile, you know, the differences between the white settlers, you know, and uh, themselves. Have you ever dealt with anything around that or have you had any and it's okay to say mm. no <laughs> yeah i think the big shift for me was you know when officially it was the name was given back um i think that was a ma major mm. turning point as well um but no i you know to be honest i didn't know about this the statement from the heart i did have yes. a short read and i think you know like um for me i think it's about you know listening letting the you know the, the leadership come from the elders and from first nations people and for us to listen that's absolutely a perfect answer mm. i think that's what the elders would like us all to say you know to listen and you know i don't think politically the government's not listening a lot to them you know because there wasn't a great response from the incumbent political party at the time to acknowledge mm. that um, but it's, you know, it's a slow progress, but I do think change will occur because if you stop and look at what's occurred even since uh, the 90s, you know, like around 97, 98, you know, when the Stolen Generation Report came out, even though it's a slow sort of burn, so much has changed in terms of really assisting, you know, First Nations people particularly in the arts, like, you know, they are very active in music and theatre and drama mm. and film, and they can tell their stories through those processes. So do you find that theatre and music and arts is a great way of sort of telling stories and getting, getting the truth out there? I think just the arts in general, because it connects to that human, it connects to the humanness of things. Um, and like when I, you know, I mentioned that, that story of the stolen wages, we use the arts to, um, you know, share the story out there. And of course we, 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 and part of that is there's also a negotiation of who, who tells those stories on stage, right? Like, mm. you know, like who, who has the right to retell stories that have been told to us?
And so, you know, again, is there leadership by First Nations people in that process? And, I, and that's, you know, beyond just um, um, Indigenous issues, that's, you know, including things like um, disability, including things like um, cultural diversity. Again, like who's, who's there being represented on stage and who, whose stories are we listening to or whose stories are we watching and who's telling them? I think that's a, mm. big, that's a big discussion and big question that needs to be had constantly. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Mm. It's who's, who's in control of the narrative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And again, also, do we constantly rehash, you know, like there's a lot, when we're thinking about applied theatre, there's a lot of that discussion of do we just focus on the sad bits or do we... Um, we, we, we do, you know, do we, we do address the challenges um, or, you know, the, the, the negative bits, but is there also space for stories of empowerment and celebration to be shared on stage? Because if not, again, though, you know, the, the, the dis discourse that's coming out of that applied theatre is, or are we just retelling the trauma over and over again? And, and that's one of the, yeah. they had to go through that, I suppose, yeah. because the opportunity to have a yeah. platform. Yeah to share those stories. But you're right. I think, not that I've watched a lot of NITV, but when I have, mm. um, what I enjoy is when I see the comedy, when they're able to, you know, an Aussie term, take the piss out of themselves, so mm. to speak, you know, to be able to laugh at themselves yeah. and of their, uh, their own ability to lighten it up yeah. and not all be too heavy. Because yeah. you're right, if yeah. they keep talking about the negatives and they keep recycling those bad stories and not saying they should never not no, be spoken yeah, about. Exactly. But a yeah. lot of people, I mean, I know a lot of my, um, you know, I'll call them our, our, our white European friends, you know, the British friends, they have, I'll say to them, you know, but this really happened, you know, this is, mm. and they go, oh yeah, but they've just got to get over it. Yeah. And I yeah. say, well, that, that doesn't help. Yeah. And that's yeah. not really a, a, an appropriate sort of reaction, but yeah. it is a reaction it mm. continues because you see it rise up every year around the, the pointy date of Australia yeah. Day, Invasion yeah. Day, you know, Survival Day. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a crunching point. Mm. keeps raising. Do you, did you, in yeah. your Christang um, sort of heritage, is there any trigger points over there that get people in Singapore um, upset about, you know, one part of the community has a different view of not, the history? I, no, not, you know, it's nothing as significant or strong as, um, you know, the, the date, the 26th of Jan date. Um, the, the, the one thing that, you know, um, would, I think when I was growing up in primary school, uh, and it's still to this day, um, the notion of race is such a, uh, an official thing in Singapore policy documents. Um, and they use the term race as opposed to, let's say, ethnicity or cultural identity or something. And mm. it's a very hard concept. So, you know, your race is, in Singapore is either you're Indian, Malay, Chinese. That's the, I guess, the majority um, makeup of the population yes. of the citizenship, uh, citizenry. And I remember in primary school, we always had to tick off on schools what our race was. And at the time, I constantly had to tick other because they only recognized the three race groups, the official race groups, I would say. And it was not until maybe the late 80s or the, or the 90s that um, they, they included Eurasian as, 
as a race category and even in our because we have national identity cards that you know we don't have here in Australia um, and I guess that's your pass to everything because not many people have driver's license so we have a national identity card and mm. part of that actually has your race <clears throat> on it a lot of it wow. has to do with a lot of it has to do with um, official policies like housing uh, public housing uh, education where you mm. might where you might go to to seek additional support because the government is quite firm on its anti-welfare stance Yes. And so, you know, they, they usually go, if you're in need of welfare, first is to go to your family. Can any family members take you in if you don't have a home? Can any extended relatives take you in if you don't have a home? The next thing is each race, I'm putting it in inverted commas, has like an organization that, that you might go to to seek for help. So, for instance, you might go to the Eurasian Association to ask for maybe a stipend or support or the Chinese Welfare Organization, or something like that. Or Mandaki for the Malays, so... And, and I suppose it's when you dig deeper into probably Chinese and even Indian heritage, because um, they've always had a caste system in India, yeah. haven't they? Yeah. And, and there's been quite dramatic sort of, uh, you know, uh, I suppose the, the lower socioeconomic poverty within mm -hmm. China before the rise of the middle class, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, you know, there was sort of, you were either poor or you were wealthy, mm -hmm. you know, there was really not a big middle ground. Mm -hmm. It's Just, interesting. How do you feel in Australia, um, like when you're, you know, with your students or with your other colleagues or when you're out and about in the community, do you think Australia still has a racist attitude? You know, like, is there that sort of broadly speaking... Um, and, and I'll say it's an ignorance, but do you find it sitting still there within the body of Australia? I think it sits to various extents. Like I'm thinking the kind of racism that I faced here and in Singapore, and it's like I can count how many, I, I can actually, I have actually personally experienced more racism in Singapore than I have here. And I wouldn't say I have not experienced racism here, but um, in Singapore, because of that, you know, it's a Chinese minority. So if you're brown skin or you're darker skinned, you tend to be sort of treated in a different way. Um, yeah, but... Better or worse? Worse. Or... Back, there, back in Singapore. Um, and, you know, it's a weird, like, the, the, the official discourse in Singapore is always like, no, we're a multicultural society, it's regardless of race, you know, it's regardless of race, language, or religion, but people from minority groups will always tell you that we, you know, like, we've been, um, it might not be, you know, my, you might not get um, beaten up, but it's the small things that people say or the way that they treat you or certain terms that they use mm. that... Um, that, that the minority groups feel it. Um, it's like a cultural bias. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. yeah. But, um, and I suppose it also depends on where you mm. live. Inner city would be more... more uh, yeah. Have a lot more sort of yeah. acceptance. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. But out in the regions, you'd find it... I don't know if this is to be mm. true, because I've only just moved to the regions. <laughs> I've always been an inner yeah. city person. You know, where... 
where our children went to schools with 30 or 40 different yeah. cultural mm. heritages. We were just talking about this the other day, you know. Uh, they went to New Farm, which is right in the, the, in the yeah. guts, and the, uh, everyone was sort of accepting of everyone. There was a very little um, racism mm. at all. It was just almost vanished, yeah. you know. But yet you go out to some suburbs and, you know, the, that, that's not mm. true. And you yeah, know, because what they're used to. Yeah, I and I, I will be lying to say that I don't feel hyper visible when I go out. Like I'm certainly very aware that I look different. I sound I sound different when and, I open and, my mouth, and so yeah. And what about when you? What about the fact that? Do you feel being here? And as you uh, said, home. You know, navigating. You have been here since 2009. You're probably going to be here a, a hell of a lot longer, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. Who knows what, what timeline. But do you ever feel a sense that you're Australian and what would that mean, even if yeah. that was a term? Like if you travelled and people said, oh, where are you from? You know, are you going to say Singapore or are I, you going to say I Australia? always say both. <laughs> I always say yes. I, I was born in Singapore, but I now live in Australia. So I, yes. I, like, I find... Beautiful. I don't know. For me, saying that I'm Australian is so weird because, again, I think that links back to citizenship as well. And I, you know, like, as someone who's not a citizen, I, I'm not, a, you know, like, technically I'm not Australian. And the only reason you're not a citizen is you can't hold two passports. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to lose your citizenship of where you've been born and raised mm-hmm. and your family, family yeah. and all your networks. And then move to another country you don't want to give up uh and that's totally understandable yeah you know? but i suppose in terms of race what i love is that someone said we need to get over this thing race we're all mm. part of only one race mm-hmm. and that's the human yeah. race you know and we're all in this together yeah. um it's sad when people mm. do build these fences around mm. ethnicity mm-hmm. and religion and beliefs you know mm. it is sad yeah. So has that got anything to do with, back to that original question way back, citizenship, um, part of your uh, cultural citizenship? Is all of that and having that sort of heritage give you a deeper understanding of that topic? Yeah, I think for me it's also finding other groups who may not share the same culture um, you know, and heritage as me and sort of how they navigate this terrain mm. and learning from them and, and understanding where they are coming from because you know like being an ethnic minority and being a Kristang growing up um, a lot of other Kristang kids went to tended to go to Catholic schools whereas I went to like a state school and so I, I didn't have any Kristang friends growing up except for um, the ones I would meet in church when I used to go to church um, but it's always you know Growing up has always been, I always had friends from different cultures because I was the only one from my, um, who was Kristang in school. And mm. so you're sort of like having wow. to, you know, you interact with other people and you, you know, you, you sort of share each other's culture. And something in Singapore that's really interesting is that we share each other's superstitions and, and practices in some sense. So like, this might be a weird thing to say, but we believe in each other's ghosts. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Wow. I haven't heard that term before. That's interesting. 
So expand that, uh, unpack that a little bit. So like ghost, uh, you know, superstitions and ghost stories are almost like a, a staple in Singapore. We Kids grew up um, reading books like the Singapore Ghost Stories. And so we, ha- we would have ghosts from different cultural groups. So for example, Singaporeans will probably get pissed at me for saying this word out loud, but um, there's, a, there's a ghost called the Pontiana. Um, and no one actually, people hate it. It's like saying Macbeth or, you know, like it's, it's like a bad, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. people just say like the P ghost or whatever, but that's, that comes yes. from like the Malay, um, tradition, but everyone, whether you're Malay or not would believe in the Pontiana, which is basically like a vampire, a female vampire. Um, and so we sort of, and, and during, during the what we call the, the Hungry Ghost Month. I'm not sure whether you've heard of that. Um, that's more like a, a, a not a Chinese, because that's more religious. So I think that's a Buddhist or maybe Taoist. Um, excuse me for, I, I can't remember whether it's Buddhist or Taoist, but it's a religious festival. And, um, you know, like we respect, because during the Hungry Ghost Month, people put out like offerings in public. So they might put like little oranges or they might burn incense or something like that. And everyone knows like not to step into that area or everyone knows to sort of just be a little bit careful when you come home at night. So it's like, that's what that's I mean by... very similar to Hindu. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what I mean by we sort of believe in each other's ghosts because like the ghosts belong to everyone and not just, even though it's come from one particular um folklore or whatever, everyone yes. is always cautious about each other's ghosts. You know what I mean? Fascinating. That yeah. is fascinating. And it's yeah. interesting, um, as I've met more and more First Nations people, because uh, they have similar uh, traditions culturally, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, they're always, you know, you don't hear about this, but, you know, they talk about these other spirits, mm-hmm. you know, these other beings um, as ghosts. And same with Pacific Islanders. You know, the Samoans and they have ghosts, you know, that they really firmly believe in, but they don't have ceremonies around those. Maybe they Mm -hmm. did in prior times to colonisation. Maybe it's possible, you know, and the church sort of said, no, you don't do that. And maybe they lost it through their own. But, yeah, it's interesting. It makes sense, though, when you think about our own uh, growing up. You know, it's it's almost like the supernatural world is, is how to deal with the unknown you know, in the dark and, you know, those things from shadows and, you know, could they exist? Could they not exist, yeah. you know? Mm, fascinating, fascinating. So how, as an educationist, you know, how would you suggest we educate people more about Australia, how to unite it and heal it, you know, in terms of its history as an educator have you got sort of ways, I mean, what we're doing is that one part of it, but, you know, to, and I think, you know, what you said originally about listening in terms of First Nations stories, mm-hmm. but it's equally, you know, like I have a convict story. I'm, I'm really not ashamed of that. A number of years ago, uh, probably in my father's generation, they never talked about it because it actually had a really bad connotation to it, you know, but so many... Uh, longer-term Australians, you know, the initial push, we are still here, Mm. and, you know, this is now our land as much as the First Nations, even though we acknowledge that it was stolen. You know, we acknowledge that our ancestors 
didn't even know what they were doing in some cases because it was a British way all around the world and it was a French way and it was a Portuguese way, you know, to just take land and uh, pretend that uh, the people yeah. on there were just savages, mm -hmm. you know, and that they, because they didn't build a monument, they hadn't built a, a, you know, a great pyramid or they hadn't built a cathedral, therefore it's just ours to take, yeah. you know. Um, what, what's your, any thoughts yeah. on that? How we and can I best think, do like, that? You know, you mentioned before, it's a long process, right? Like, it's not going to change overnight. But um, I think I want to borrow from something that one of my supervisors, my PhD supervisors, and it, again, it links back to that applied theatre, and it talks about the little changes. It's a theatre of little changes. So what are the little changes we can make, let's say, in the classroom? Um, you, know, do, you know, one of the things that I've done in the past is sort of get students to share, you know, uh, when they come to class, what is their their name, but sort of what's their cultural heritage. Um, but also thinking about the curriculum, what is taught? Is it just um, European history or is it taught a diversity of histories? Um, looking at the text we choose, do we always study a, a, a canonical Western text or do we bring in texts from various cultures, whether it's First Nations texts or... Um, African texts or Asian texts in its wide, you know, it's wide, even within the, the term African, there's that wide diversity of African cultures and a, uh, similar with Asian cultures. And I think, you know, making those small changes, but also you're like, who, who is in the classroom with them? You know, like um, having, for instance, like I might be someone that another non-white student might connect with because they go, look, there's someone who's leading the classroom who's, who looks like me. Um, hmm. And and I, I think, again, embracing that diversity in the classroom and students, would, as, our, as our, hopefully if, as our classrooms become more and more diverse, you're sort of tapping into the richness that the students themselves bring and sort of tapping into their, their own knowledges and their own experience and their own backgrounds to enrich what happens in the classroom. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it really does start in the classroom, yeah. doesn't it? And then out in the public, the, in the community. Yeah. You know. yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, look, I think um, unless there's anything you want to add, I think we should um, wrap it up. And I just want to say it's been absolutely fantastic yeah. um, conversing with you and allowing our audience to listen to of your story about Christang and Singapore, stories that we didn't even know Thanks. existed. Um, and that whole interface yeah. between the Portuguese and, you know, this sort of region. And, you know, you're, you're more connected <laughs> ancestrally to Australia than you're probably <laughs> aware. <laughs> that's what I love. And, you know, that's what, when we found that there's some words uh, that some tribes of the First Nations, some of the mobs, use some of the words that they found Portuguese, you realise that, wow, these things impact on us. And even some of us are not aware of, uh, you know, that our histories have all been interwoven and that intercultural sort of existence has been here for a while. Mm. You know, but thanks, Natalie. Thanks, I appreciate everything. Thanks for the invitation. And, um, and you're at Griffith University. If anyone wants to reach out, um, you're a lecturer there doing your research. Um, are you doing a... PhD no, I finished or that. You're one. doing your master. I finished that. Yep. Oh, that's, that's been a gone. Yeah. That's a big. That's a, so you're a doctor formally yeah, now. Yeah. Yep. Okay. 
How do you like using that? Uh, I don't use it as much. I'm sort of cautious using it on planes, <laughs> just in case. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Someone say, there's a doctor on the plane. Yeah, no, I can talk about public uh, pedagogy, no, but I can't really perform CPR or anything. <laughs> <laughs> the medical doctors sort of take the whole gamut, yeah. don't they? Yeah, I know. I've got friends that are doctors of music yeah. and, you know, very dead. Do they come out? They don't want yeah. to advertise yeah. <laughs> for the same reason. But anyway, thank you and have a great week and appreciate thank it. Um, thank you and... Anyone that's listening, don't forget we've got our website, which is www.walkingthreeworlds.com. We've also got Patreon. If you love what we're doing, support us in any small way you can at the cost of a small coffee, $3 a month, $6 a month, $10 a month. It really just goes towards helping us market it and pays our editing and web people. Um, and I want to pay respects to my six uh, great Patreon people uh, that are there with us today Um and I won't rattle them off because I didn't write it down, but I, I, you know who you are. You're always listening. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, have a great week, everyone.